John chapter 1, we'll be continuing our look at the gospel according to John, and uh, we'll be here today. Uh, we, we might be here for a while, actually, John chapter 1. This is, I think, our eighth message in this chapter, and there's no end in sight, <laughs> really. There's so much here. Um, you start to read, um, and, I, and I don't typically start with, by reading what others say about a text. I, I try to seek the Lord myself and, and what the Holy Spirit reveals to me, but sometimes you, you, you get from other people what other men have studied and, and written on a subject or on a text. It's a help to help understand it and maybe convey some things. Um, just to pour through what, what others have written about John 1 would take a lifetime. I mean, there's just so much here. You know, there, the, the texts in Scripture that are hard to explain, and you hope that you'll find some nugget from somebody, everyone skips over. They're afraid of it. Uh, but John 1, man, there's so much here. I, um, it's hard to know exactly how to present it. But this morning, I want to give you some, some, some ideas, some truth um, from this text that I think will be a help to us. John 1, once you find it, go ahead and stand out of respect for God's word. If you'll remember then, to this point, John has been approached by the religious Jews, the, the Pharisees, the Levites, the priests. They've come to John asking who he is because he's a voice out in the wilderness. He's begun to baptize. And he's not just baptizing Gentiles to convert them to Judaism, which would have been the practice in the day. No, now he's, he's baptizing Jews um, to repentance, meaning that they're... That, Usually at that time, they would just take a Gentile converting and baptize. Well, now the Jews are being baptized, and the religious leaders are like, what's going on? It's causing a stir in Jerusalem. So they come out, and they say, who are you? And John doesn't really even answer the question. He says, well, I'll tell you who I'm not. I'm not Jesus. I'm not that prophet. I'm not Elijah. I have one job. My job is to point people to the coming Messiah. That's it. That's his job. And, and I want to see today then what's interesting about our text this morning as we begin in verse 29 is this is the first time that you get the name um, uh, Jesus with John there present. It's, it's for the first time John isn't just saying, hey, prepare yourself for the Messiah. At this time, John says, hey, this guy right here, that's him. This is a huge moment in the scripture, and I don't want to miss it. Verse 29, it says, the next day. Now, I'll say this as I read. The next day, it, it, it likely means the day after the Jews had come and asked him who he was. And he said, I'm just preparing the way for the one who comes after me, whose shoe latch that I'm not even worthy to unloose. That's, that's, uh, that's all I'm here to do. Well, the next day... This happens. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Man, what a phrase we could stop there. But look, it says in verse 30, This is he whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit, notice Spirit, 
is capitalized. It's talking about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him, upon Jesus. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Wow. I mean, I don't even know where to start. One notable thing about John is he always remembered why he was there. He always remembered who he was. He always remembered his responsibility. And his responsibility was this. I'm here to point people to Jesus. I am here to point to the Messiah. It was never about himself. And you might say this, that John was an incredible deflector. He was an incredible deflector. They'd come, they'd say, what are you doing? He'd say, I'm preparing the way for the Messiah. They'd say, well, who are you? Don't look at me, look at the Messiah. They'd say, what's your name? It doesn't matter. Uh, I'm here for the Messiah. And now, here comes Jesus in the flesh. They see him for the first time, understanding who he is. And John identifies him and says, don't look at me. Look at the lamb. Don't look at me. Don't think about me. Don't be about me. Be about the lamb. That's why I'm here. Last week, we, were, we looked at the question, who are you? Well, today we're going to try to, the answer, to answer this question, who is Jesus? See, I'd like to follow John's advice and take a good look at Jesus. Because he's the Lamb of God. He taketh away the sin of the world. And I was thinking just here as I was preparing for this, I just want to talk about Jesus. You say, well, that sounds a little cheesy. But is there anything better we could talk about this morning than Jesus? Um, let's talk about Jesus. The King of Kings is He. The Lord of Lords supreme through all eternity. The great I am. The way. The truth, the life, the door. Let's talk about Jesus more and more. If all we did was talk about Jesus... Every moment of our morning has been worth it. Who is Jesus? Well, I hope to take a look at that today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come. I'm humbled. I'm humbled that you allow me to talk about Jesus I don't have anything in myself that I can say that means anything. I'm just going to use your word. That's all I have. Lord, help us to just think about Jesus Christ today. And help us to be focused on the Savior. He's the Lamb. He taketh away the sin of the world. And Lord, there are people in this room right now who need to look at the Lamb. So I pray today that you'd help us. Help us to be humbled that we have a subject like this to focus on. And I pray that you'd help us, Lord, today. 
to just talk about Jesus, but not just talk, Lord, that we would make a decision. And those in this room who have never actually chosen Christ, that today would be the day they look at the Lamb. Lord, we need you and we pray for your help. Pray that bless the reading of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Raising children um, is eye-opening at times. If, you've, if you have children, um, one thing that I'll never get over is how different two children are from the same mom and dad. Uh, how different perspectives, different personalities, different likes, different dislikes. Our two oldest, Olivia and Audrey, who aren't here, which is why I'm, have the, I have the courage to talk about them today. <laughs> they're in college in Oklahoma and they're... They're 13 months apart, but worlds apart. And uh, they have opposite personalities, opposite likes and dislikes, opposite interests, opposite gifts, different perspectives. It seems as if Audrey decided early on that Audrey determined her personality based on whatever Olivia wasn't. If Olivia liked this, I like this. If Olivia does this, I'm going to do this. Oh, Olivia likes dolls, I like guns. Olivia likes princess dresses. I like camouflage. One of the earliest realizations of how opposite they are was based on uh, just how they received compliments. When Olivia was little and someone would tell her how pretty and cute she was with her little blonde hair, she would just smile and bask in the glow. Audrey, on the other hand, couldn't stand the attention. One time we were stranded overnight in Denver in the airport... And that's why I'm crying actually this morning because I'm remembering that night. It was terrible with children and they had no place to go. We slept on the floor, but we were stranded one night in the Denver airport trying to make it home. And the girls were very little, maybe two and three. I mean, very, very small. And we were standing in line for something and, and someone complimented Audrey um, probably just about the way she looked. She was just a beautiful little China doll is what she reminded me of when she was little and She's probably two years old, and so this person looks at her, and she gets embarrassed at the compliment, so she looks over at Olivia and slugs her. <laughs> we were like, what are you doing? The person that complimented her, probably, she was shocked and probably walked away thinking, that girl's not cute, she's crazy, you know? They, they scuttled off, and, and that's when we realized Audrey does not like attention. She's still that way. And she was doing whatever she could to deflect the attention from herself to someone else and come to find out that a two-year-old slugging their sister is a crude yet effective way to get the attention off of yourself. Deflection. Deflection. You know, deflection is something we do all the time. And, and when someone compliments you and you're embarrassed... You downplay the compliment. You, you, know, you know, you try to you know, shift to something else or say it wasn't about me, I didn't, it wasn't me, it was them and this and that. Or when we don't like how we're being perceived by someone we, or we don't want to take responsibility maybe for something, then we tend to shift blame or shift the focus to someone else to appear a certain way. Deflection then is typically um, perceived as something negative. 
you say, well, I'm going to deflect away from myself. It's, you know, I, I don't want the attention. But for our purposes today, I just want to consider the definition of the deflection. To deflect is, is when you make something change direction. That's really all it is. It's, it's neither right or wrong. It can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. I mean, I try to deflect um, when I, you know, after a service, if someone might at times would say, um, that was a helpful sermon. Um, I try to say praise the Lord as if to say it wasn't about me. If there's anything good in the sermon, I can promise you it wasn't me that did it. It has to be the Lord's help. Praise the Lord. That's a good use of reflection. You and I know how a deflection, I should say. You and I understand the concept. But of all the people that have ever been good at deflecting, John the Baptist might have been the best at deflecting. See, remember the Pharisees had come to him and asked him, who are you and why are you baptizing? And he says, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, I'm not Moses' prophet, I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy and my job, I'm here to help you get ready for the coming Messiah. John deflected by changing the direction of the attention to the one who deserved it, to the Messiah. That was his job. And when Jesus walks up then the next day, he said, don't look at me, he's the one. Don't look in my direction, this is the lamb. And then John starts describing who Jesus is. And he makes some eternally significant statements about Jesus Christ. This is a very simple concept this morning. I just want to give you the things that John says about Jesus John is talking about Jesus, and sometimes we just need to talk about Jesus. We just need to think about who he is, and we need to think about what he, what he has done and what it means for us. And the first thing that John says about Jesus, he says this, Jesus is the lamb that every person needs to deal with sin. Jesus is the lamb that every person needs to deal with sin. He uses the word lamb. Now, this would have been a shocking word to the Jews. For centuries, the Jews had been offering lambs in the temple, the tabernacle first, then the temple, as sacrifices for their sin. Over and over, thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs over the years. And now, there's, there's somebody then pointing to a young Galilean carpenter and saying, this is the lamb. And they're probably like, I mean, what are you talking about, John? What, what do you mean, lamb of God? Well, John is saying this is the lamb that will fulfill what all those countless other lambs uh, could only symbolize. All of these years, they've symbolized the removal of sin, the forgiveness of sin, the atonement for sin. And he says, this guy, this is the sacrificial lamb not just for Israel, but he can take away the sin of the whole world. And this is incredible. The word lamb was familiar to them, but this, this is the first time the title Lamb of God has been used. And it's the only time Lamb of God will be used. The, the, in Revelation, the word lamb is there, but it's a different word. So a, a lamb was significant in the Passover. They would have understood that when they were departing from Egypt to cross the Red Sea and go into the Promised Land, 
Um, then they took a lamb and they, they spread the, the blood over the door of their homes. And that lamb rescued them from the angel of death that night. So a lamb became an important part in the ritual sacrifice of the Jewish religion to God. Uh, they would once a year sacrifice a lamb. Um, and, and then they would also every morning and evening they would sacrifice a lamb. There were multiple thousands and thousands of lambs sacrificed. That's what they would have thought of. Isaiah referred to Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. He referred to him as a lamb in Isaiah 53, verse 7, and, and following, who died to bear the sins of many. So they may have been thinking about that, but this was a new concept for them to look at a person and then think, oh, that's the lamb. That's different. This is shocking. You know, they knew that a lamb represented symbolic cleansing of sin. And from the first sinners in the garden, if you think about it, from the very first sinners in the garden, Adam and Eve, they took a, a, an animal, I'm assuming that it was a lamb, and they took a, a, an animal and they shed its blood as a symbol of those sins that were forgiven. But the problem was a lamb couldn't permanently do the job. A lamb could be a temporary placeholder, and so when the, but when the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ, came along, he brought a sacrifice capable of paying for every sin for all time. One commentator said all that the ancient sacrifices foreshadowed was perfectly fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ. This is a different lamb. He's not a placeholder lamb. He's the supreme lamb and the only lamb that God has provided to take away our sins. I, I honestly, I mean, I could spend hours, days, weeks, years talking about the lamb and we may spend more time but I'm just going to go through some of these phrases that John uses to just talk about Jesus this morning we could get more into these but he says he's the lamb of God and that phrase it points to the fact that God himself sent this lamb that this lamb came from God and the idea is we need nothing more because God sent this lamb this is the last one needed he said behold the lamb of God which taketh away. What does that mean? Well, this means atonement by substitution. 2 Corinthians 5, 5.21 says that Jesus Christ became sin for us. He died in our place. He took our sins upon himself. He took the judgment of God upon himself uh, for our uh, sins. And, and then it says he taketh it away. And that means that nothing else is required. It's at, the idea is that you, you bear a burden and you carry it away like the scapegoat it, for the Jewish uh, temple sacrifice. The scapegoat would, would be chosen. The sins uh, would be placed symbolically on that scapegoat and he would go out into the wilderness and carry those sins away. And that's the idea of taketh away the sins. It means they're gone. Nothing else is required. And if you, listen, if you pay off your house, which many of us would hopefully love to do eventually, the deed says paid in full, which means you don't have to go back the next month and make another payment. It's carried away. The burden has been lifted off of you. It's been taken away. It's done. That's what Jesus Christ the Lamb did for us. This phrase is present tense, which means it's ongoing, it's ever available, and it, it was a one-time payment, yes, but it applies to anyone who comes along and seeks for that payment to be applied to their account. 
It implies this burden carried away. Don't, don't lose sight of how important it is that our sins have been taken away. He says, behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin. So in one word, uh, John the Gospel writer, not John the Baptist, John the Gospel writer, John the Beloved, John the Apostle, he, he, he gives us what John the Baptist said and he uses the word sin and it lumps together all the countless transgressions that every man and every woman and every child has ever committed. Each individual sin was paid for. I mean, think about the worst sins in your past, the things that make you blush even when you think about them by yourself, the worst things that you've done. Every individual sin that you've ever committed was paid for by Jesus Christ. Inherent, the inherent guilt of the whole world that we all have as sinners was also removed. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And that pretty much covers everybody. There's a group out there that believes that the limited atonement of Christ is that he paid for only those sins of some, those that he has chosen. And I dispute that based on a phrase like this one. I mean, not every sinner will accept Christ's payment for their sins, but that phrase means that if he died for the sin of the whole world, he taketh away the sin of the whole world. I'm not sure who we, with any authority, can say that leaves out. He taketh away the sin of the world. Not only that, but that phrase means that anyone, no matter how rotten, no matter how sinful, no matter how bad and how dark their past mistakes, they can have their sins paid for by Jesus Christ. You say, well, yeah, he takes away the sins of the church members and the ones that look the part, but no, he takes away your sins too. He is fully capable of taking away and paying for your sins. You don't have to wonder if you're one of the chosen. If you're a sinner and you're part of the world, then he died to take away your sins too. He's the lamb and he can take away your sins. But that's not all John deflects us to think about. He says, second, Jesus is eternal. Which makes him more than just a man, another man. Jesus is eternal, which makes him more than just another man. Look at verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. John clarifies, he says, he is more than just a man. This is, he says, because he had already referred to this earlier in the chapter, he says, after me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. You say, what, what does that mean? Well, it's, you could say, some might say, that, well, this means that John is younger than Jesus, that Jesus was born first, and John is saying, well, uh, he's preferred before me because he came before me. And in that culture, that would have been important. You, you respected the generation before you. You respected those that were older than you, which, by the way, we need to go back to that in our culture. You know, it, it should be that, that we respect those that have gone before us and we're thankful for the prices they paid and we don't just dismiss them because they're older, which a lot of young people in our culture are doing. And I'm telling you, a young person, you'll be better off to respect those that have come before you, be thankful for the sacrifices they made and have respect for the previous generation. It's the way it would have been in that culture. But I think most of us know that John was not 
old, John was already older than Jesus. He was born at least six months before Jesus Christ. If you go back and read his beginning and how his mother Elizabeth was, was great with child months before Mary was. They're cousins and yet John, so John is older. So it wouldn't make sense for him to say, um, the one that comes after me is preferred before me. No, he's saying not in age. You know, he's preferred before me in another way. He was before me not in earthly months or earthly years. No, he's preferred before me in terms of eternity. Meaning that he has been in existence. He has been around longer than I can even comprehend. He is before me. And what John is saying in this phrase is that Jesus is the pre-existent one. He has always been in existence. He is eternal. And this is a huge statement. John is saying, yes, this person that you see in that flesh, that bodily person... This carpenter from Galilee who they didn't know. That he's saying this person in this body, he is pre-existent. He's eternal. And they're saying, you're crazy. Well, John was making a bold statement. He's saying, yes, he looks like a man, but he's 100% God. 100% God. 100% man. All God. All man. Don't ask me how it works. All I can say is that the God of heaven wrapped himself in flesh and walked on this planet for 33 years. He never stopped being God when he became a man. He was a man because he had a body, but he, always had, but he has always been God because Jesus is eternal. He's always existed. Jesus himself told the skeptics in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. Meaning that you go back to Abraham, you think that was a long time ago, go back way before that, I am. Anything, any, any point in time you can think of, any point in eternity you can think of, I am. I've always existed, I will always exist. And, and John though, he announces this about Jesus, but he didn't always know this about Jesus. We know that Jesus and John were cousins but John didn't recognize Jesus as Messiah until John baptized Jesus. Again, in verse 31, I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And so here are the instructions that John had gotten from God the Father. I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. John knew that was talking about the Messiah. And God the Father gave him instruction. When he however, he came to John and gave him instruction saying, I want you to go baptize so that you can reveal the Messiah uh, to the children of Israel. When he told him that, he says, you'll know who the Messiah is because you'll see the Holy Spirit descend like a dove upon the one who will be the Messiah. We don't know exactly how this worked. I don't know. I can't explain all of it. I just know that at some time before this account, John had already baptized Jesus. And John had already come to realize that Jesus is the Messiah. I happen to think that, that, that he baptized Jesus about 40 days before this. Because if you know anything about the other gospel accounts, then you know that at the, at the baptism of Jesus, they both go down into the water. At first, John says, no, I don't know that you should 
uh, that I should baptize you. And Jesus says, no, this is going to fulfill all righteousness. So they go down into the water. John baptizes Jesus. When he comes back, back out of the water, somehow there's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit like a dove. And it descends upon Jesus. And at that moment, Jesus' cousin John knew this is the Messiah. Well, you also know that right after the baptism of Jesus, then the devil led him up into the wilderness to tempt him for 40 days. So I happen to believe, I mean, if you're just looking at timelines, that John baptized Jesus, then Jesus disappeared for 40 days. So for 40 days, John's saying, and we have evidence of this, hey, he's already among you. He doesn't call him out by name, but he says, he's here. I've witnessed it. The Messiah is here. And I believe, I don't know exactly when, but I believe maybe around 40 days after his baptism, John's preaching in the wilderness like he's been doing for the past month or so. And here comes Jesus. And maybe John's saying, okay, good. I'm not crazy. I didn't just, you know, think that I was seeing something. I haven't seen him in 40 days. And here he comes again. And maybe in all that, that's when John says, okay, there he is. This is the Lamb of God. This is the one that taketh away the sin of the world. But I want you to understand, how did John know that? How did John know this is the Messiah? Well, God says, you'll see the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. So understand this, that John knew this was Jesus because the Holy Spirit revealed it. So this isn't John just making this up. And this is point number three, that Jesus, here's what John says about Jesus. We'll just talk about Jesus, he says. He says, I'm just a guy, but let me tell you, Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. He's all God and all men. But he also says, and his identity is not something I made up. No, the Holy Spirit confirmed his identity. So it's not just me saying this. The Holy Spirit has revealed this. And John continues to deflect and say, don't talk about me. Don't look at me. No, I want you to look at Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb. Jesus is eternal. Jesus has been confirmed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. It's a fulfilling of prophecies like Isaiah chapter 11. It says, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Jesus Christ himself quoted Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4 when he talked about the spirit of the Lord being upon him and how he was anointed to bring good news and bind the brokenhearted and give liberty to captives. Jesus Christ himself was identified by the Holy Spirit. This isn't John making it up. No, he has evidence from God. And by the way, you see good evidence of the Trinity like we talked about today, the three in one in the songs we were singing um, there, that God the Father talks to John about Jesus and says the Holy Spirit will manifest him. So don't let anybody tell you that the Trinity is a made-up doctrine. That there are, because there are verses in the Bible that people will make you doubt. 1 John 5, 7 being one of them. They'll say it doesn't belong in the Bible. The Trinity is not a doctrine of the Bible. But right here we see the doctrine of the Trinity. We see God the Father giving instruction to John the Baptist about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will make it manifest. The Trinity is a real thing. Now don't ask me to explain it. I don't understand how God is one person, but, but three personalities with three different roles or functions. But we see all of them doing their job right here. It's just one God, though. 
It's not a plural God. It's one God with three distinct separate personalities that have different roles and functions. But that's not the point. That was a side note, okay? The point I want to make about this is John was saying, I'm not the one that made this up. The Holy Spirit identified Jesus. It's kind of like the guys that stand on the street corners with a big sign, with an arrow. Say, come eat our subs. Or come, come do your taxes here. You know, that's always exciting. Oh, yeah, a new tax place, you know. You know, those guys with a sign, with a giant arrow. And, and say, come, stop here. Come here. You know, that's what John is doing. That's what the Holy Spirit did. It's like the giant arrow is pointing to Jesus and saying, this is the one. And John says, I know this is the one. The Holy Spirit identified him. The Holy Spirit came and anointed Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. But that's not all John says the Holy Spirit and Jesus have a role in. Look at verse 33. It says, And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining in him, on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. So, so this, the work of Jesus Christ would also usher in the baptism of the Holy Ghost on believers. On the day of Pentecost, then we know that the Holy Spirit came upon those disciples and, if you will, baptized them, immersed them, and fulfilled, fulfilled many Old Testament prophecies on that day about how God would pour out His Spirit on His people. And so Jesus had ascended back to heaven. The Holy Spirit came upon the disciples to fill and empower them. His ministry is one of empowerment and guidance and, and comfort. And baptism, though, of the Holy Spirit is something that if you're a believer, it's taken place in your life as well. That when, when you get saved, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 6 say that we are baptized into Jesus Christ. That's not talking about a water baptism. Baptism means immersion. And so at your salvation, you are placed into Jesus Christ. You're, you're, I don't know how it works. You're spiritually put into Jesus. And, and you're immersed into Jesus Christ. But that's a work the Holy Spirit does. And from that moment on, we have an abundant supply of the Holy Spirit at our disposal. Jesus gave you a wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. He works in us, he works for us, he guides us, he, he leads us, he illuminates God's word to us. But listen, we have the Holy, all the Holy Spirit that you'll ever need, but you decide how much control he has in your life. Amen. And John makes it clear, something that we need to know about Jesus is this, the presence of the Holy Spirit proves he's the Messiah. He came down at his baptism. He's, he's filled and empowered with the Spirit. And then he fills his believers with that same Spirit. John essentially says, listen, you can hear my words, but understand there's somebody greater than me identifying the Messiah. It's the Holy Spirit. So who is Jesus? Well, John says he is the Lamb. John says he's eternal. John says he's identified by the Holy Spirit. And let me give you one more. Jesus is God's son. Look at verse 34. And I saw and bear record that this is the son of God. This is the first of many times that John the apostle identifies Jesus as the son of God. And listen, John the Baptist, you know, the deflector. He may have just been some other guy. 
But he says, Jesus isn't just some other guy. He's the son of God. And folks, we could cover this topic for 20 years and never do it justice and never exhaust it. But we must accept by faith, and hear this, you must accept by faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And if he is the Son of God, then he is God. He's the only begotten Son, which means he is uniquely the only one who shares the divine nature of his Father. You and I, we are adopted as sons and daughters, but we don't share the divine nature of God in ourselves. No, Jesus does, though. He is God's Son, not by adoption. He is God's Son by nature. And there are cults out there, there are false religions that will teach you that Jesus is a son of God. But if you don't believe he's the son of God, then you don't believe in the right Jesus. He is the son of God. And John is making the case that Jesus absolutely is the Messiah. You want to know who Jesus is? Here's John. He's saying he's the only one qualified to die for our sins. He's the Lamb of God. And he's the only one who can take sins away. He is eternal. He has always existed. He's empowered by the Spirit. He baptizes us with the Spirit. And I'm telling you, in John's words, he is the Son of God. And what John was doing was deflecting all the attention from him, just some guy, to the one whom, about whom he was witnessing. He says, there's no one else like Jesus. You can look far and wide. You can try to read all the books you want to. You can search all the religions, but you you won't find anyone else like Jesus. Why? Well, he's not just some other God who told us the way to heaven. No, he became the way to heaven. Jesus didn't just come in our flesh or come in the flesh and tell us to look to God to have our sins paid for. No, he walked to the cross in his flesh and he paid for our sins on himself. He stepped out of eternity. He became like us so he could have a body and that it could die in our place. He didn't just make it possible for us to know how to get to heaven. He's the one that makes it possible. He is uniquely the only and one son of God, but he died in your place. The only one who's ever done that. All those other religious leaders died of old age or died for some other reason, but our God died for our, us in our place for our sins. He's the only one who's ever done that. Listen, if you know who Jesus is, and you can't help but be amazed at what Jesus did. He's God. John gives us the testimony of that. But he's also the sacrifice for our sins. So what do we do with what we know about Jesus? We've been talking about Jesus. Well, there's one word we haven't focused on yet. Look back in verse 29. It says this. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith. What's the next word? Okay. If you've got something really cool, you're trying to get somebody to look at, how would you say that word? Behold. No, let's say it like this is the most important news you've ever pointed somebody to. Then the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold. 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 The Lamb. Don't get carried away, Bob. 
You know what John's doing? He's saying this. Look at Jesus. He doesn't say, look at me. And he doesn't say, look at your good works. He doesn't say, look at your religion. He doesn't say, look at your baptism. No, none of those things can take away the penalty of our sins. But Jesus is God and he can. So friend, look to the Lamb. John is deflecting. Don't look at me. Look to the Lamb. Don't look at baptism. Look to the Lamb. Don't look at good works. Look to the Lamb. Don't look at your parents' faith. No, look to the Lamb. Don't look at religion. Look to the Lamb. My question to you today is this. Have you looked to the Lamb to take away your sins and give you eternal life? See, there's no other lamb. You can search the bushes. You can look far and wide. And no one else can do for you what Jesus the lamb has already done. There is no other lamb. He is God. He's the only exclusive way to heaven. And here's the great thing about this. Are you ready? Anyone can look. Anyone. See, it doesn't matter how bad you are, anyone can look. And it doesn't matter how far you've gone, anyone can look. It doesn't matter how shady your past is, anyone can look. Are you tired of having no peace in your life? Look to the Lamb of God. So I'm asking you this morning, what is keeping you from looking to Jesus for salvation? What is holding you back? All you need to hear this morning is this. The Son of God has come to earth. He's the Lamb. He's eternal. The Holy Spirit has converted him. And so now, guess what? It's time to look at the Lamb. It's, it's, it's time to stop looking at all these other things that you've been trusting in and trust the Lamb alone for salvation. But Christian, this applies to us too. See, John's life purpose was to do what he could to help others look at the Lamb. My question is, what in your life is keeping others from clearly seeing the Lamb? What, I mean, can they behold the Lamb in your words? Can they see the Lamb in your, wor- in your attitudes? Couples, married folks, can they see the lamb? Can they see Jesus in your marriage? Teens, can, they, can people looking at you behold the lamb in the way that you interact with your parents? See, this is, this is not just deflection, this is reflection. Meaning that we should not just point people to Jesus, we should reveal Jesus to people in the way that we live our lives. So I'm quite, my question is, do you reflect the lamb in your life? We must continuously behold the lamb or others won't see the lamb in us. It's time to just stop in whatever you're doing in your life that is spinning your wheels and start to look at the lamb. Live your life looking at Jesus Christ. He's the only one that will help you with all the things that we deal with. He's the only one with all the answers. And I wonder how many would look to the Lamb if God's people lived in such a way that the Lamb could be seen. I wonder how often I hide the Lamb from people that would love to see Him if I would simply speak right and have the right attitude and do the right things and do the right and, and, and live the right way. How often am I hiding the Lamb from someone seeing him because of the way that I'm living. Friend, if your sins have been taken away, live in such a way that others can behold the lamb in your life. 
Why? Because the best way for them to see the lamb is for us to reflect the lamb. Rather than live in such a way that people see you, let's be like John and say, don't look at me. I want you to see the lamb. Change the direction of their focus. That's deflection from us to the lamb. So this morning, the question again is, who is Jesus? Well, he's the lamb. And he's eternal. And he's been identified by the Holy Spirit. And he is God's son. And if those things are true, then the lost in this room, and I believe there are some lost in this room that you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You don't know Jesus Christ. You're not living for Jesus Christ. And you've come maybe seeking something, but you know you don't have a relationship with him. Well, if those things are true, if he really is the lamb and he really is eternal and he really it was identified by the Holy Spirit and he honestly truly is God's son, then you need to look to the lamb to be saved. This morning's the morning to do it. You will acknowledge your sin and place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You know, you could be saved this morning. Look to the Lamb. And if those things are true, then the Christians in this room need to live in such a way that they deflect all attention to the one who deserves it. Because it's not about us. It's about the Lamb. So to every person in this room, I just want to say to you this morning... Look to the Lamb. To everyone watching on live stream this morning, look to the Lamb. To the Christians, live in such a way that says, look to the Lamb. To the lost, you can be saved this morning if you would simply look at the Lamb. If you from sin are longing to be free, what's the next phrase? Look to the Lamb of God. He to redeem you died on Calvary. Look to the Lamb of God. When Satan tempts and doubts, when Satan tempts and doubts and fears assail, look to the Lamb of God. You in his strength shall over all prevail. Are you a weary? Does the day seem long? His love will cheer and fill your heart with song. You can say it with more passion than that. It's okay. Fear not when shadows on your pathway fall. Enjoy your sorrow. Christ is all in all. And the chorus says, look to the Lamb of God. Look to the Lamb of God. For he alone is able to save you. Look to the Lamb of God. Listen, whatever problem you have, the best solution is always this. You're never going to guess. Look to the Lamb. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the Lamb. Is that what your life is about? Is your life really all about the Lamb? Is it really all about Jesus? Is there, or is there something else that you look to more? If you're lost this morning, you can look to the Lamb and be saved by faith. 
If you're a Christian, it's time to live in such a way that you don't, you don't keep somebody else from seeing the Lamb. We want to live in such a way that the Lamb can be seen. And all we need to think this morning is this. Let's look to the Lamb. Would you be willing to make a commitment this morning to look to the Lamb? If you're lost, would you be willing to place your faith in Jesus and have eternal life? If you're a Christian, would you be willing to say, I need to make some changes in my life so people can see the Lamb through me? Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We'll have a verse of invitation. An invitation is just that. It's an invitation to come and make a decision for Christ. Do you need to look to the Lamb this morning for salvation? Do you need to live in such a way that others can look to the Lamb? Maybe they've been hindered in the way that you've talked, the, way, the attitude you've had. Moms and dads, maybe something in your life, your children, they're being hindered by seeing the Lamb in you, husbands and wives, employees, whatever it is. We need to be like John and says, it's not about me. I will do whatever it takes for somebody else to be able to look to the Lamb. Would you be willing this morning to place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation? Maybe you've come today and you say, if I die today, I don't know that I'd be on my way to heaven. Well, you can know today. Would you be willing? Heavenly Father, I pray that you work in our lives. Give us the courage today to respond. I pray for those that are here this morning that may not be saved. Would you give them the courage to place their faith in Jesus Christ? For those Christians in here that have been maybe in such, living in such a way that the Lamb has been hidden because of something. Lord, help us to live in, in a way that John lived, that it's all about him and I want others to see him through me. God, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to deflect this morning and to make it about you instead of about us. And if it's all about you, Lord, we're asking you, how do you want us to respond? How do you want us to choose? What decision do you want us to make. If it's all about you, Lord, we want to please you even in this invitation that we want to look to the Lamb. Thank you, Lord, for the truth in Jesus' name. Amen.